Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello, this is Simon Brew, and you're listening to Film Stories. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that have stories... The story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honored if you would join us. Hello and a very warm welcome to Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew. As always, that's all you need to know about me. The aim of the podcast, though, is, as the title of it suggests, to talk about the stories in and around films. They might be marketing stories, development stories, production stories, release stories, just those little tales that build the, the whole ecosystem of cinema that help put, bring the films that we know and love to, to our screens. Now, the films I tend to choose for this podcast have a bit of a mainstream slant, really. They also tend to align with films I, I particularly like. Um, and also, they're, ju- they're just something interesting interesting to me about the story and hopefully something interesting to you as well. There's a pair of films in this episode that I really love an awful lot. And so I'm going to start by taking us back to 1993 to Paul Hall and to a very, very tense sequence in a Brian De Palma movie. Let's start with the clip and then get into the story. You got a light? Yeah, sure, man. playing a part, right? Yeah. I can't resist this. I gotta show you people in the shop. Yo, yo, we in the middle of a game here, man. Right you playing a part, right? Right before you rap. It's nothing. Ain't gonna bother you, game. When you see this, you ain't gonna believe it. Gonna line them up like this. Hey, you gonna show us a trick shot, Carlito? No trick shot. This is magic time. Yeah, that's an abrupt end to the clip, but it does tend to get quite sweary after that bit. And this is obviously a very family friendly podcast. The film there is 1993's brilliant Carlito's Way, directed by Brian De Palma, screenplay by David Kep, um, Al Pacino, Sean Penn, Penelope Ann Miller, John Leguizamo, Viggo Mortensen uh, all appear in the movie. And the film came at an interesting point in Brian De Palma's career that it hit, as we covered in a previous episode, of film stories a critical and commercial sweet spot with the untouchables he used the currency of that to go on to make a film that i think he would have assumed would have been more respected than it was casualties of war with michael j fox and sean penn then he adapted one of hollywood's most infamous flops of the 1990s well he the, the book wasn't the film was so the book was tom wolf's the bonfire of the vanities the film version starring bruce willis melanie griffith melanie griffith and tom hanks the story of that was told in an excellent book by julie salomon called the devil's candy which tells you just where that film went wrong and coming off the back of it de palma went back to his uh, to his lower budget thriller roots for raising cane starring john lithgow when Carlito's Way came along then, he was, uh, uh, an, uh, not for the first time, an, an interesting point in his career, possibly a crossroads, depending which way that he went. So he was, uh, the, 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 the project came across his desk and he, he was quite reluctant to do it. He'd visited the gangster territory as he'd seen it with Scarface, also with Al Pacino, and he wasn't necessarily uh, minded to return to that. 
Now, the actual genesis of Carlito's Way goes back to a, a pair of books by Judge Edwin Torres, written in the 1970s. Um, and he was a New York judge who, who wrote them all out longhand originally. And the books came to the attention of Al Pacino in the, in the early 1970s. Uh, and Pacino uh, became familiar with the character of Carlito while he was making one of his many classics, Serpico. So he read the books and there was some uncertainty at that point. I couldn't quite get to the full nub of of this bit of the story as to whether he'd committed to Carlito's way in a different form beforehand. One thing that was certain was that a lawsuit was brought in the late 1980s by a producer called Elliot Kastner, who said he alleged that Pacino had agreed to star in the film opposite Marlon Brando in the role that was eventually played by Sean Penn in De Palma's movie. That suit, though, was dropped um, and didn't get anywhere, wasn't proven, and the project, in whatever shape it was at that stage, uh, stalled at that point. Now... Pacino was still keen to get he was he was keen to get the film made. He wanted to bring the story of Carlito's Way, uh, as it would become known, to the big screen. And he persuaded producer Martin Bregman to get involved. Um, Bregman, in turn, then turned to screenwriter David Kep, who'd been who'd been penning the script for The Shadow at that point. And heck, there's a story and a half behind that film that, again, I may come to at a later point. Kep um, had, it was a job and a half, really, to to get the story right. He had, he ummed and ahed an awful lot about whether to keep voiceover narration within the film. The ending of the movie, I'm trying to go relatively spoiler free on this podcast, so I won't go into detail on it. The ending of the movie was also causing some degree of consternation. But a screenplay gradually came together. Then it was a case of looking for a director and De Palma wasn't the first name in the mix for the film. Um, John McKenzie, who at the point was riding high off the off the back of the Long Good Friday, starring the late brilliant Bob Hoskins, of course, he was linked with the film at one point. Um, producer Martin Bregman had a relationship, uh, a working relationship with uh, Abel Ferreira, and Ferreira reportedly came quite close to taking the project on. De Palma was a little bit reluctant for reasons I've just talked about, uh, but eventually he did opt to read the full screenplay. And it's only when he, he read it all the way through that he realised this wasn't Scarface at all. This was a very different a very different character and a very different story. And even though there were overlaps and nods to Scarface in the final movie, they're, they're distinct stories and going off in, in distinctly different directions. De Palma, it's worth noting, um, saw uh, you know saw saw bits of himself really in the project and in the story that that needed to be told. He was not in the easiest of places. Over the course of the film's production, he got married, he had a child, and got divorced. And so you've got this character of Carlito in the movie, as played by Al Pacino, who's taking stock of life, having some degree of midlife crisis. And De Palma um, would would admit. Yeah, and, and this comes from the, the excellent book by Douglas Kesey, uh, Brian De Palma's Split Screen. He would admit that he saw some degree of reflection in that. The casting of the film came together. De Palma hired Sean Penn, who he'd worked with on Casualties of War. Pacino was was in there from day one. Penelope Ann Miller came in. John Leguizamo, who wrote about the book, uh, about the film in his excellent memoir. And I'm going to come to one or two of his points shortly. Um, early role for Viggo Mortensen. I mean, Louis Guzman in there as well. And, and really a terrific ensemble cast. Um, 
for Leguizamo, I mean, the, the, the filming began in March 1993. And for John Leguizamo, he'd taken a little bit of persuading. Well, quite a lot of persuading, actually, to sign up in the first place. So by this point in his career, he'd built up a reputation for his stage work. And there, there was uh, there was some reticence over the fact that it was, you know, on paper, quite a thin supporting role that he was being asked to play. And Leguizamo, in, in his memoir, admitted that he turned the film down because he didn't just want to do, he didn't want to do what he called just another film about Latin guys dealing drugs. He then also recalled that the part was quite underwritten um, and ultimately th- there wasn't a lot to it. Now, countering that, he was part of the ensemble for Casualties of War uh, as well. And he'd worked with De Palma before. Um, and also at this point in his life, he didn't have a big job on at that point. And so even in spite of all the reservations he had about playing the character Benny Blanco, he he eventually decided to jump in. But he jumped in with a conversation with Brian De Palma um, that would De Palma let him improvise the character? Would would he allow him to play and to grow the character? And and Leguizamo tells the story, tells the story of, of very much enjoying working with De Palma that he's a director who's very very meticulous about his visuals but he's a lot more open on the dialogue and that in this instance really suited what Leguizamo was was looking to do he had an opportunity to build this character at points where he was being asked to go quiet he would deliberately go the other way he would try and antagonize he would try and get under their skin and and he is an absolute standout uh, one of the absolute standouts in the film he also talked about there was a degree of nervousness now perhaps not nervousness but he he was Sean Penn um, who is excellent in the film as well was a particular hero of Leguizamo so a real acting hero and they hadn't had the best of times when they were making casualties of war together that Leguizamo recalled that Penn was quite aloof throughout the whole shoot um, that he in his words he didn't party with the rest of us wouldn't even say hello he gets totally absorbed in his role he's a method actor actor's method actor i really love that phrase and leguizamo did say he was like a god to me so i kept saying hello to him i'd say hello like three times a day and he'd ignore me every time and that does cut the the book is called pimps host player haters and all the rest of my hollywood friends and i do recommend it an awful lot Filming then got underway in New York, which is where the bulk of the production was based. And one of the things that David Kep and Brian De Palma had identified is they wanted a really big suspense scene early on in the film to get the audience involved. Now, Carlito's Way is a long film. The running time of it is listed as two hours, 25 minutes. And it doesn't feel it when you watch it, but they were conscious that what they had was quite an extensive story that they were looking to put on screen. And they... they they needed to get audience buy-in. And that's where we get to the pool hall sequence that I played you a clip of just a, a little while ago. And that was a key sequence to De Palma. I mean, De Palma is, is infamous and rightly so for his excellent set pieces. I mean, we we talked about the, uh, the train station steps in The Untouchables, for instance. You go forward into the Mission Impossible films. And in terms of putting together the before, during and after of a key set piece scene, De Palma, amongst his contemporaries, surely stands tallest. Um, his Hitchcock influences are all over his work um, and, and for the benefit of as well. 
In this particular case, De Palma would meticulously design the Paul Hall sequence, right, the, the shape of the sets, uh, the ordering of the sequence, the exact position where each of the pool balls would be. And he would cut uh, he would cut the scene together. He and his editor would cut the scene together. And it went off to the studio and it came back with um, with, with a studio note. And it goes into this on the DVD and Blu-ray. There's a, there's a really interesting half an hour making of on there that if you like the film, it, it, it's, it's not one of these filling the disc up extras. There's actually some substance to it. And my, the, the one lovely anecdote that comes out of that is that the studio gave them notes that this Paul Hall sequence was too long. It was taking too long in the film. The note was duly passed to De Palma and they said, yeah, it's right. And so he made it even longer. And he set it. What, what he did is he went back to the foundation of that scene. He put in more of the build up that was lacking before. He set up more of the geography of the scene. Where were the characters at the point? Where, where were all the individual characters, the people in that room at the point before the, the action kicks in? He made sure that the audience knew the, the, the entire setup of it. He put the establishing stuff in. And it was all cut back together and it went back to the studio, this this longer version of the scene. And the studio note came back, which said, yep, it's much better now. It's shorter. Perfect. The other um, the other big I, I mean, De Palma acknowledges that there's barely any action in the film. So when he did have his action sequences, he really needed to make them count. And so the other one in Carlito's way is the big uh, is the big sequence through the train station at the end of the film. Again, I'm not going into the exact detail of that um, for spoiler reasons. But the logistics of that, because it was filmed on location, that part was, involved trains being rerouted and the timing of them altered, all to fit the demands of shooting this particular sequence. One thing to look for that those involved in the film have chuckled about since is the escalator. That uh, I think it's Fast and Furious 6 where there's a runway that just seems to go on forever and ever and ever. Uh, Carlito's way comfortably got there first. There is an ele- there is a, a, an escalator that goes on forever and ever and ever and ever. And they keep having to cut and just try and hide it because there's so much going on in the time it takes for this escalator ride to complete. And it's worth having a look at that because it, it's, it's a masterclass really in editing and misdirection and just blinding the audience to the logistics of what they're actually looking at. The very end of the film, um, there are there's a sequence involving Pacino and Sean Penn, which, in spite of the years of development of the screenplay, um, only really got nailed on the day that Pacino came in the day it was supposed to be shoot on the on the set they were supposed to shoot on, and and just said, I don't think this would happen. He wouldn't say this. He wouldn't be here. Wouldn't do that. And they came up. I think it was eight lines of dialogue. David Kep says. That, that that was hastily put together that perfectly fits the film um, and there, there's a cut there's a couple of killer lines in there and I mean it just goes to prove that no matter how I mean th- this story was in gestation but it took 20 years to get to the screen and yet one of those moments only comes together on the day the last minute I think it was Robert Town when he was say, when he's ever talked about um, writing Chinatown and he talks about all these last minute accidents and the panics and and all of this stuff that contributed to make what's generally regarded as one of the most perfect screenplays yet in his head at the time he was a writer careering towards a deadline and I just find that I just find that completely fascinating 
Carlito's Way would wrap filming in July of 1993 and it made it to cinemas in November 1993 uh, to generally positive, uh, some very, very good reviews. There was a, a, a tickling of awards interest, but it, uh, particularly around the Golden Globes. Um, but there was also decent box office as well. And that had kind of eluded De Palma for a little bit, that the film in all cost about $30 million to make. And it got a worldwide gross in the uh, 63, 64 million dollars. It did well on video. Um, and in particular, the Benny Blanco moments have lived on for an awful long time. And it, it is a film that's had a life. I don't, it's not a film that, that particularly you know, gets a high profile look back every now and then but it's a film that uh, certainly for me whenever it's on I'll watch it I I go back to the the disc and have a look at it every couple of years Um, and it's a film for which there's uh, I'd suggest quite a lot of affection for De Palma it also um, ended with his latest I I, I guess you call it career uh, rehabilitation in that it was the success of Carlito's Way that brought him back into the frame and brought him back into the frame as a Hollywood blockbuster director with Tom Cruise, um, uh, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner identifying him as the director for Mission Impossible, which would come out in 1996 and be the biggest hit of De Palma's career. In fact, I, I, I think commercially that uh, after that point, he was never quite the same again. But I do think of his 90s films, it's Carlito's Way for me um, and Mission Impossible that, that really really stand up and are really strong and really worth another look. Just a quick plug in the middle of the podcast then, um, before I move on to my next film, that reviews and retweets and uh, all that gubbins it really helps so we're just a small independent outfit and if you've downloaded and liked this podcast if you could subscribe to it that would be great if you could lead a leave leave or lead i don't mind make it up i will uh if you could leave a review for it at your podcast platform of choice that too would be enormously appreciated. It is, to quote a supermarket cliche, one of those things where every little helps, every big helps as well, really. But, you know, all, all your support is massively appreciated. Now then, I'm going a little bit further back in time again to another film that I, I really adore. And I, I and it's almost bittersweet talking about it because a couple of the principles involved in it are no longer with us, taken from us tragically early. But I do think their work stands and deserves to be celebrated. So let's go back to 1990. Let me just play you a little bit of a clip and then I'll get into the story the other side. The day Jamie went away, Nina's whole world fell apart. It's tragic. One minute he has a sore throat, then he's having an examination, the next moment he stopped breathing. Then, without warning, he came back. (coughs) It was truly miraculous. Are you here? You are here. <laughs> well, even the clip starts to get me to well up. Such is the power and brilliance of 1990s uh, fantasy, drama, romance. Categorise it how you like. Truly, madly, deeply. Um, written and directed by the late Anthony Mangella, starring Juliet Stevenson and the late Alan Rickman. And this was um, a story that was developed for BBC Television's Screen 2 series of films. 
So uh, it's worth contextualising. In the early 1990s, the British film industry, by most descriptions, were, were, was pretty much dead. That Merchant Ivory were making films, The Howard's End, The Remains of the Day. Um, and f- uh, Film 4 was just coming through. And BBC Films was starting up, partly to plug some of that gap uh, and also to bring original productions to BBC Television. So a year or so later, Enchanted April, intended for television, would get awards attention in the US but that was originally envisaged as a a feature-length BBC drama, effectively a film, but a film for television. In the case of Truly Madly Deeply, this started with Anthony Minghella. Now, uh, a a couple of sources here. The Truly Madly Deeply DVD has an excellent interview and commentary track with him. I also recommend the Faber and Faber book, uh, Minghella on Minghella, which uh, has an awful lot on the film within it. Um, Minghella, by uh, always admit it, he's he was a writer first and foremost. I mean, he'd worked on Grange Hill, um, and he was in the midst of the first few series of Inspector Morse, which had proven to be a massive television hit for ITV. And in fact, strands of Inspector Morse are, are still going in various forms. But he was approached by the BBC, and the BBC at this stage was starting a film division. And he was invited to write a film for it um, that he, he he even as he was preparing to do more Morse, this opportunity uh, was presented to him. So he had a decision to make. Uh, does he press ahead with series four, as it were, of Inspector Morse or did he pursue the BBC project? So. He, he he had dueling offers, and and ITV thought they got thought they got their man when they offered to Anthony Minghella the chance to direct an episode of Morse as well. And Morse episodes were what ninety? I mean, they were two hours including adverts, so it wasn't your standard television drama. Um, and when the and when this was put to the BBC, they were like, "Well, you could direct this film." Then they they just matched the offer, and and the negotiation, by the sounds of it, was as simple as that. And so Minghella had a choice: does he do what became Truly Madly Deeply, originally called Cello, as I understand it, or does he do Morse? And he picked the movie for an, an interesting reason. The reason being, he simply thought fewer people would see it. And this is this is paraphrasing his words that if he was going to try directing for the first time, if he was going to try something experimental, he'd want to do it away from the glare. Whereas if he was doing an episode of Morse, a good 10 million people would watch his first directorial effort. And it wasn't really a thought that comforted him an awful lot. So he picked doing Truly Madly Deeply. So then he was like, well, well, what do I do? How do I do it? What, what, what do I want this to be about? And he zeroed in on an actor he'd worked with before, Juliet Stevenson. And he'd worked with Juliet Stevenson on a BBC series called Maybury. Um, it was Patrick Stewart who, uh, who, who put Minghella onto Juliet Stevenson and introduce, introduced them uh, and, and brought their working lives together. And Minghella would describe Stevenson as his muse, that he wrote he wrote the film for her and around her talents and around her interests. Now, he elsewhere had, as well as been doing Inspector Morse, he'd been working on the Jim Henson production, The Storyteller, for a couple of years. And as part of pass, a part and parcel of that, he'd been investigating classic grim fairy tales, dark, dark stories, fantasy stories. And he saw in the end this screenplay that he put together as those two worlds to some degree 
coming together. That with his absolute love of music, uh, a, a, a huge, huge music fan, huge classical music fan. And so it all gelled. It all it all came together. He wrote the screenplay. And then there was talk at, at one point of the film actually being made with an American cast and an American setting. But Minghella was keen to keep this small for aforementioned reasons as much as anything else. And also it was a British story. This was the story he wanted to tell. And so he stuck it out. And the film was uh, the film was made in it was shot in under a calendar month. And the the budget what six hundred six hundred and fifty thousand dollars. It was a very very small television production. It was Mingella reportedly who brought Alan Rickman into the role of Jamie to play opposite Juliet Stevenson's Nina uh, in the film. And Mingella in, really saw the film as more of a comedy that he he didn't quite get the heft that it the, the dramatic heft that it have till later on. And I'll come to that in a minute. In terms of the shooting of the film, though, it was... The, I mean, let's go back to that budget. That That is nothing for a feature-length film, you know? And as a consequence, uh, Minghella was moving fast. And he was moving fast partly because he'd never directed before. And when he went back to do the DVD extras for the film, he looked back at some of his um, some of his notes and sheets from around the time that he was making the movie, and he realised there, there are scenes in the film where he'd done one shot, hadn't even done a safety take on it so you know one take of that one take of that two takes of that what you know and he 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 did say he did make the point that on his later films films like the talented mr ripley and the english uh, and the english patient um they used more more actual physical film stock in a day he estimated on one or two of those than they did throughout the entirety of the shooting of truly madly deeply he, I, I, I mean, that, that, that carried through into post-production as well, that when he got to the edit room, he hadn't actually shot much in the way of coverage. One of the, one of the obvious byproducts of you only do one take of a scene is you've got to work with what's there. And he did talk about how the editing of the film was as much stitching together the stuff that he'd shot as opposed to exploring options. That he, he talked about in the edit room on, again, on Mr Ripley and on The English Patient, he would spend a year... Uh, editing those films and piecing them together against the few weeks that he had on Truly Madly Deeply. And he did acknowledge that, the, the, you know, the effect to him in his head was was, was roughly the same, that, you know, you, you are a hostage of whatever situation you are in at that given time. And he, he, I mean, looking back at Truly Madly Deeply, even though he was, he was pretty amazed he managed to put it together so quickly, um, that was the circumstance. Those were the cards that he, that he dealt with, that, that he was dealt with. So, the film was finished and then it was it started to screen that the, the test screenings audiences were put before the movie. And that's the point where Minghella and uh, that Minghella really appreciated, I think, that he had more than he'd first realised, that there was something really special there. Um, and that you know the BBC executives were feeling the same. That they, they, they so he didn't. I mean, Miguel describes how he didn't get how much emotion there was until he saw it on the screen and he saw the reaction. And I remember when this film came out and when it was being pushed, and it was around the time that Ghost um, was hitting big. Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, Whoopi Goldberg, and to a degree they were posited in one or two places in the press as parallels you know r- r- different takes on roughly the same story I think a little bit in that perhaps but they're very very different beasts that said truly madly deeply did start to get some traction in america 
those reviews were coming in really, really strong. Juliet Stevenson, for one, would, would describe the role actually of Nina as, as her favourite. Um, the, the the best time she, I, I think she called it the best time she'd had on a film set and the favourite of all the roles that she played. Um, that the production, the shooting of the film was almost like a party. It was it was that that much fun to do. She loved working with Rickman and by stories Rickman loved working with Stevenson and, and this joyous cast and and this joyous production really produced something very very special off the back of the success of the film Anthony Minghella suddenly was on Hollywood's radar and the offers started to come in and he took one of them and he direct he, he took on a job directing a film called Mr. Wonderful. And Mr. Wonderful is a film that stars Matt Dillon. And this time he was, it's Matt Dillon, Annabella Ciora, Mary Louise Parker and William Hurt. And this time he was directing from someone else's script. And he'd not really done that before. Amy Shaw and Vicky Pollan penned Mr. Wonderful. And all the freedom that he'd had on Truly Madly Deeply was gone that it, it, he describes it as a completely contrary experience that whilst you know there, there are bits of the film he, he's quite happy with the experience of making that film for a studio in America was was very very different and not something he massively enjoyed but he, he did say it brought him into contact with crew and film uh, and people who would work on his films in the future so you know it, it was never regarded in any sense as a write-off far from it but it, in his head cemented the fact that maybe he needed to come back to Britain, maybe he needed to get out of Hollywood to make the films that he really wanted to make. And that's really what he did. He he would go on to do The English Patient just a few years later, and he would describe that as a manifestation of the kind of movies he wanted to make. Minghella, um would describe Truly Madly Deeply as a, a, a film made, these are his words, I think it's beautiful, a film made with mild intention. And yet it was the film that most people talked to him about. And it remains a tragedy and a half uh, that this job that he, he admitted he lucked into, um, that, that this fabulous talent um, left us so early that Minghella would uh, pass on at the age of just 54 back in 2008. And... This was the film that people kept talking to him about. This was the special, you know, the, the special cinematic gift he left us. And if you look at the films that he made, that is that is no small compliment either. I've left Alan Rickman till last uh, to talk about Alan Rickman till last. I'd never leave his talents till last. Such an immense and brilliant human being. And I did have the privilege of interviewing him uh, a year or so before he died when he was... Uh, when he was on promotional duties for his second directorial act, outing, A Little Chaos. And, I mean, Rickman, as you would expect, really committed himself to the role. He took cello lessons for it. He does part of the musical performance himself in the in the movie. Um, and his acting performance opposite Stevenson. I mean, both of them are just extraordinary in this. And I asked him what he learned from working with Anthony Minghella on on truly madly deeply and he said i think i learned through all of my working life that limitations are good for your imagination that if you're given everything you don't know what to pick and he noted that truly madly deeply was anthony Minghella's first film as director and and he's quote lovely quote you can't forget the fact that on the first day he gathered us actors and crew together and said all right everybody i have one word and that is help that here was a man who was whose ego was was 
nowhere near in the stratosphere of, of perhaps some directors who go onto a set and are ultra controlling for the first time. He almost admitted he's out of his depth and he needed the help of the people around him to realise the film. And perhaps that's what made it such a party atmosphere. Perhaps that's what made the, the camaraderie really come through into the final cut of the movie, that, that there was something really special that they all captured here. We lost, of course, the brilliant Alan Rickman too early. And I think this is one of his standout roles in a standout film. And so whilst it's bittersweet um, re-watching Truly Madly Deeply, especially given its themes, especially given how, how moving it was, even when it first came out, I do think it's a significant treat that all concerned have left us with. That then, everybody, has been the latest uh, episode of Film Stories with Simon Brew. As we speak, if all goes to plan, well, as I speak, I don't know if you're speaking, I hope you are, uh, I hope you're having a lovely day. Um, issue two of Film Stories Print Magazine, uh, Britain's latest mainstream film magazine, is starting to ship. You can order your copy at filmstories.co.uk. It leads with a huge interview with Mark Kermode where he takes us behind the scenes of Secrets of Cinema, amongst uh, many, many other things. Um, you, all the information you need for it is on the website. Thank you for everybody who supports this completely insane project that we've come up with. If you want to support us in other ways, we've tried to put, well, we have put more video film stories at youtube.com slash film stories, and hopefully you'll enjoy those. If you can support us on Twitter, at Simon Brew is me, at Film Stories Pod is the Film Stories Project. Facebook, heck, we're hiding there as well. Filmstories.com slash Film Stories Online. All said, I think we've got through all the business. I think there's a couple of cracking films that I've hugely enjoyed talking to you about this week. I hope you've enjoyed it as well. Um, I'll be back uh, very soon with some more film stories. You all look after yourselves. Take care. Bye-bye.